I want to begin this afternoon by asking us all a question. It's difficult to understate the importance of how we answer this question to our life together as a church and to our lives as individual Christians. And the question is this, what is the goal of the Christian faith? What is the goal of the Christian faith? Another way we might ask this and maybe make it a little bit more personal is, what is the end of your existence? Or what are you living for? How we answer any of these questions reveals a great deal about what we believe. Now, many answer these questions in a decidedly material way. They might say that the goal of the Christian faith, why you might be a Christian, is to live your, life, live your best life now. It's to experience prosperity, to experience wealth and health and security. This is what God wants for you now, they say. Others answer this question maybe in a more therapeutic way. They say that the Christian faith exists to make you happy. It's to bring you peace in times of trouble and joy in times of sorrow. Why would you be a Christian? To be happy. God wants you to feel better, to be happier, to be emotionally stable, they say. Now maybe you're aware, as I present these hypothetical answers, that these answers are very self-centered. They define the goal of the Christian faith in terms of what it might do for us, what we might get. But this is distortion of the Christian faith. Some recognize the problem with this and instead say that the goal of the Christian faith is to renew the world, to care for the poor, to right wrongs. But while Christians should be those who shine as a light for justice and truth, for mercy and grace, this is not what the Bible teaches is the goal of the Christian faith. It's certainly an implication, but it's not the goal. The text we come to today brings clarity to the goal of our faith. It helps us understand the end for which we are made, the place we are destined to arrive. No one gets in the car, hopefully no one gets in the car, having no idea where they're going. They know where they're going, they know that destination. They might need to plug in directions in their GPS or whatever, but they're going to take a certain route to get there. The destination makes all the difference for the route that we take. Answering this question is so important because knowing our goal, knowing where we are aiming, it not only gives us a future hope that sustains and strengthens us, it also directs us in how to live now. Our future destination determines our present actions. And we are to be a people who live with the end in mind. Now, in a significant sense, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus addresses his followers and is telling them, because you belong to my kingdom, my kingdom that is breaking into the world, my kingdom that is to come, this is how you should then live. Because of who you really are, live then like this. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So with that in mind, let's look to God's Word together. We're going to begin in Matthew 5, verse 1. We're going to read to verse 8. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The verse we're going to give our attention to today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You pray with me once again. Father, thank you for your word that reveals yourself to us. Thank you that we are not a people who uh, grasp at who God might be, but you are a God who speaks to us and reveals who you are in your word. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, thank you that your, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and may it pierce our hearts this morning. May we see you in your glory, may we see our own sin, and may we rejoice in the mercy and grace that is available to us in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Last week I took some time to discuss how the Beatitudes are like this ladder that we climb up. They're not just a bunch of unrelated statements that were just jumbled together. Each statement provides the basis for the next. And the same is true today as we continue to ascend this ladder. Now, Jesus begins by saying that the first key to Kingdom living, kingdom living. The first key to true happiness is something we wouldn't expect. It's to be poor in spirit. It's this recognition that we have nothing in ourselves to gain salvation. Nothing in my hands I bring. We have no hope when we look only within. And this leads to the second rung of the ladder. Those who are poor in spirit should be those who mourn. They mourn over their sin and the effects of that sin. And this mourning over our sin should produce meekness. Blessed are the meek, which expresses itself in humility and dependence on God alone. And because all of our hope is wrapped up in God, we then hunger and thirst for His righteousness. His righteousness to be put on display in our, in our lives and in the world around us. And this hunger results in a disposition to show mercy to those around us, as we talked about last week. We cannot keep the grace of God to ourselves, but it must overflow to all those we interact with. But the implications of the mercy of God don't end there. They lead to a changed heart, a pure heart, which longs to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Why does Jesus say that the pure heart is blessed? Because they will see God. This is the ultimate goal of the Christian faith. Getting back to that first question I asked. This is the goal of the Christian faith. Seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 20th century British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, he describes this statement as one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. He says, indeed, no one can ever exhaust this verse. And I tried this week, and I didn't even come close. You can't exhaust this verse. Now, while we have no chance of exhausting this verse today or any other day, it would be wise for us to once again come to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from his wisdom as we listen to his word. Now, in this one sentence, Jesus tells us something that is vital about life in his kingdom. He discloses the, the requirement for 
and result of kingdom living. In other words, he's telling his disciples what must be done to reach this blessed destination. And we're going to consider this verse under, under three headings this afternoon. The result, the requirement, and the response. The result, the requirement, and the response. The first, the result. Now, rather begin with who will be blessed, which we're going to give attention to. I want us to begin this afternoon with how those who belong to Christ's kingdom will be blessed. We're going to begin with the end in mind. And we're starting here because I think it brings into proper perspective the requirement for being in God's kingdom. So how will the pure in heart be blessed? This is the result. They shall see God. Seeing God is the goal of the Christian faith. But if you're anything like me, this is something that we seldom consider. And if that is true for you, like me, you're not alone. In fact, this, this doctrine of seeing God, what in throughout church history has been known as the beatific vision, maybe you haven't heard of that, you probably haven't heard of that, not many people talk about it. One theologian says that it has essentially, this doctrine has essentially dropped into oblivion. But this doctrine is the reason we exist as Christians. It's our ultimate destination. It's where we are headed. It's what results from receiving the grace and goodness of God. Now get this, at the end of all of God's grace is not material gain or emotional well-being. It is God himself. At the end of all of God's grace is God. And beholding him and seeing him is as one guy in church history said, it's the very heaven of heaven. It is ultimate happiness to see God. Jonathan Edwards, he writes of this beatific vision that the pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it to brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. There is no darkness that can bear such powerful light. The very heaven of heavens is to see God. Now let's take just a few moments to consider this powerful light. The great paradox of the Christian's destination, the paradox of heaven, that of seeing God, is that it's not like beholding anything else in this world. It's not like seeing a famous painting that you've studied your whole life or seeing one of the eight wonders of the world that you've been longing to go see. All of these things, once we go see them, we, we can be captivated by them. They can take our breath away. But over time, we, we grow used to it. The sight grows familiar. Some of the wonder is lost. But seeing God, this is the paradox, seeing God is a sight that cannot be and will not be exhausted. It is never-ending perfection, which even though this vision is perfect and at once will fill us with wonder and awe, this wonder of seeing God will always increase. That's crazy. God is limitless in his perfection, and our wonder will, will never end. It will always increase. 
because God is God. God is holy and infinite. This is the end for which all those in Christ are destined. And this was God's intention from beginning to end. God doesn't just give us our hope. God is our hope. God is the end for which we are created. He is the target for which we aim. Our hope isn't no more pain, as wonderful as that is. It's not our hope. Our goal isn't an incredible feast, as much as I might look forward to that. At the end of all of the grace of God is God himself. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The Christian hope is that we would see God. And this is actually where the story of Scripture begins, with the blessing of seeing God. We see this in the, in the creation narrative. As all creation is spoken into existence, it leads to the creation of man in the image of God on the sixth day. Now, if we thought of this as the climax of the creation story, then we would have thought wrong. The climax comes on the next day, where we don't see more production, we don't see more creative work. What we see is the presence of God. On the seventh day of creation, as God finishes his work, he rests. He rests among his people. There's a sense in which the, the creation story is a story of God designing a world in which he can dwell. Just as a temple is made for God's presence, so this garden is designed for God to walk in it. The presence of God in the garden is the grand finale of the creation story. That's what it's all leading up to. When we recognize that God's presence is the finale, the fact that God was one who walked in the garden, this broadens our understanding of this garden. Because Eden wasn't just a garden, it was a temple. It was this place that God made in which he could reside, a place of holiness and goodness and perfection. If we go from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, 3, to the end, Revelation 21 and 22, we see that the end is actually quite similar to the beginning. Where instead of a garden, though, we have a city. And running through the middle of this city is a river. And on either side of this river is a tree. And the culmination of heaven is this, in Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And just as presence was the great finale at the beginning, so it will be at the end. Now it's important to note that there's one thing missing in this final scene. John writes this in Revelation 21, verse 22. He says, I saw no temple in this city. There's no dwelling place for God. Why? John says next, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There's no need for a temple because it's God. It is God. Here, there is no need for a separate, set-apart place for God to dwell, since He is that dwelling place. And this is the great result for which we are destined, the place for which we are made. But what does one have to do to attain this site? What, is, what does one need to do to get in on this view? What is the requirement 
for seeing God. And this is our second heading, the requirement. Jesus tells us here in Matthew 5, 8, who will see God? It's right there. The pure in heart. And David asked this in Psalm 24, verse 3. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? What David is asking is, Who can see God? Who might dwell with him? And David's answer comes in the next verse, Psalm 24, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And by looking at these verses, we can better understand what Jesus means when he says that we must be pure in heart. Those who are pure in heart are those who seek God with their whole being, with all that they are. They are defined by truthfulness, an undivided commitment to the word and ways of God. Here there is no compromise of God's law, no accommodation to the world around us. The opposite of being pure is to be impure, to be unclean. The impure does not know what to do or who to follow, but the pure in heart follows the words of Christ. Now Jesus identifies that the requirement for seeing God does not only have to do with how we behave or what we say, which might be what the Pharisees, the, those religious people around Jesus might have said. It's not about, for us, it's not about you must go to church every Sunday or you must not curse. This requirement does not only have to do with what we know. It's not if you know theology well or if you go to enough Bible studies. While all these things are good, they are not the requirement. They're not Jesus' primary concern. His concern, not what we say, not what we do, it's our hearts. And this presents a great challenge to us, because you see the heart, it's the very center of who we are. The heart encompasses our personality, our thoughts, our actions, our will, our affections. And when we look within, into our hearts, what we find is not very encouraging. Even if we look at the pages of scripture and how it talks about the heart, what we find is not very encouraging. The heart is the fountain of all our troubles. Jeremiah describes it as deceitful above all things, desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. Later in Matthew 15, 18 and 19, these are the words of Jesus about the heart. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. This makes a person unclean, it makes them impure. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's what comes out of the heart. All those things. And quote Lloyd-Jones again, he writes that to be pure in heart, it means that we have an undivided love, an undivided love, which regards God as our highest good and which is concerned only about loving God. It means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect and that that should be the supreme desire of our life. Live for the glory, to the glory of God in every respect, and that should be the supreme desire of our life. Does this describe your life? Do you have an undivided love for God? Or do you love the world and the things of this world? 
do you love your own comfort as well? I'm not saying you don't love God, but maybe you love God in that. Or are you concerned for God's glory in every respect? Are you concerned only about loving God? Now, I know how I must answer each of these questions, and I suspect that your answer is very similar to mine. And this is a massive problem for us. On top of that, we read from the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 14, he says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I can stand here and honestly say that, that I don't have that holiness. And one thing that we must know and understand about God is that God is holy. We can sing about it, holy, holy, holy. We can talk about it, but it's reality. God is holy. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God cannot dwell with any people if they are not holy. No unholy person can see God. This past week, I've been in Leviticus in my daily Bible reading. And at first glance, Leviticus may seem like a difficult book to engage with. But when it's seen in light of the holiness of God and his commitment to that which is holy, the text just jumps with life. When I read Leviticus, it's like I go on a treasure hunt looking for words that speak about holiness and sanctification and being made holy and being sanctified and being clean and being consecrated. And these phrases are all over Leviticus. And just this morning I was reading in Leviticus 19. And God says to Moses, he says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the rest of the chapter goes on to provide various commands to God's people. And each one concludes with, the basis for each one is, I am the Lord. God gives his people these requirements not because he's a harsh God, not so that they might earn something before him or prove themselves to him, but simply because he is God. He is holy. And being holy, he cannot tolerate or be in the presence of that which is not holy. So because of his mercy, which Leviticus has all over it, God tells his people, this is how you are to be holy. There is no other way to be my people because I'm holy. I am the Lord. So this is then how you must live. But what hope is there for us to fulfill this requirement? How can we ever see God? Our only hope, just as these Beatitudes have been reminding us, is to turn to Jesus. It's to be poor in spirit, to acknowledge that we are dead in our sin. We are without hope on our own. And then to look to Christ. Listen to God's promise to his people in Ezekiel 36. God says this, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Notice who's doing that cleansing. It's not us, we're not cleansing ourselves. God is cleansing us. And he says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. The only way that we can have a pure heart is to recognize that our hearts are not pure. And then to mourn over our sin and, to, and then to turn to God 
who alone can make us pure. Only the Holy Spirit can turn this impure heart into a pure heart. And this takes place first at salvation, thanks be to God, as the the Holy Spirit gives us saving faith and unites us to Christ. And His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His obedience, our obedience. His purity, our purity. By faith, the Spirit purifies our hearts. And then once we are united to Christ, the Holy Spirit's work doesn't end. It goes on. Once we've been given this pure heart, the Holy Spirit works in us over time to to sanctify us, to mortify our flesh, to have more and more of the mind of Christ. And this work will not be complete until glory. What a gift of grace to have the Spirit to give us new hearts. And we began by considering the results of being pure in heart, seeing God. We've just looked at the requirements for seeing God, being pure in heart. And now we turn to the response. How should we now live? The response. I want to highlight three ways that we should respond to this recognition that the pure in heart shall be blessed by seeing God. And actually, before I get to those, I just want to share, I was having a conversation with Christine earlier today, and uh, one challenge that I've had regularly as I prepare for sermons is just my own heart, whether it be laziness or selfishness or just my own frailty. I can't do it all and I can never get it done when I want to get it done. And so oftentimes my sermon, all the time, I shouldn't say oftentimes, so all the time, my sermon preparation bleeds into Sundays. I'll spend Sunday morning or through the day and I I don't want that to be the case, but that's often the case. That's always the case. It's always been the case. And I was having a hard time as Christine's talking to me about this stuff. And as, as, I, as we got ready to leave, just thinking about the difference that knowing that I'm going to see God makes this. I mean, it totally changes my perspective on uh, how I view myself and how I view my circumstances. One day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to see him in his beauty and in his perfection and in the fullness of his glory. And if that's what's going to happen one day, I want to get ready for that today. And so when I see selfishness or lazy in my own life, in my own heart, I want to confess those and turn away from those. When I recognize the frailness of my humanity, I want to seek to grow and trust that one day all that frailty will be gone and know that God's grace is sufficient for me in my weakness. One day I'm going to see God. It makes all the difference. So with that in mind, just three, three ways that we might respond to this. And they're all going to be stop and start. All right, so first is this. Stop listening to the world and start listening to God. Now, when I say start listening to God, I know many of you listen to God on the regular. But we still often make room for the world where we shouldn't make room for the world. So stop listening to the world. Start listening to God. Do you give more of your ear to the thoughts of this world, whether it be through news or social media or friends, than to the God who speaks to us through his word. Now, I think we're particularly susceptible to this through how we engage the world through social media. Now, these different platforms, they present everyone's voice and everyone's lives on a somewhat equal playing field. So we might be going through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever other social platform you might be on, and you come across someone posting a scripture verse. Great. And then you keep swiping and there's someone complaining 
or something else. Now, there's no godly or ungodly filter on these platforms, no wholesome or unwholesome view. It all comes across the same. It's all just presented the same. Now, the danger of this is that both individuals, maybe it's a church member who is pursuing God, and maybe the other person is an old friend who's walked away from the church, both these individuals end up taking up the same space in your thoughts and in your mind. Their voice ends up ringing in your ear. But the question is this, why would you ever care what someone who maybe wants the name of Christian without the life of a Christian, why would you care what they think about any issue? Why would it matter? I think this is one way that we often listen to the world. Stop listening to the world. Start listening to God. And we do this by going to him in his word, by reading in such a way that we come to him to know him, not just about him or not just for our own benefit, but to know him as he's revealed himself to be. So do you read the Bible to know God or do you read the Bible to feel good? It can be easy for us to only read for inspiration and encouragement for the day rather than reading to see the God who reveals himself to us. And this evidence is a Christianity that is less about God and more about us if we read just to feel good. Or do you read the Bible to know God, or do you read the Bible to support your own opinions? And we far too quickly pick up our Bible, not to see the God revealed there, but to find justification for our own opinions or our own decisions. And this evidence is a Christianity that is less about worship and more about pride. Brothers and sisters, let us listen to God and not listen to the world. Second, stop living for the world and start living for God. To live for God is to live for heaven. He is who we are made for. He is what we are destined for. He is the great blessing that we are promised. So then, let us live for him. Paul says in Colossians he says, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Where are you tempted to set your mind on things of earth? Are you more concerned with what those around you think than what God thinks? Or do you spend more time considering retirement or your health or your financial success than you do about the sure gain of heaven with God. John writes this in, in 1 John 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you are a Christian because of your destination, because one day you will see God, prepare yourself for that destination. People are, in our culture are, are fond of preparing themselves, and it's coming up, kind of starts in January and goes through the next few months, preparing themselves for the beach and the pool. Those summer days are coming, so the time to get in shape is now. Whole companies and fitness industries have arisen out of this desire to be ready for those days by the water. If this is how many in the world view, and many of us might view and prepare for summertime, how much more should we as Christians prepare for our heavenly reality, right. for our heavenly destination? Right. What we do now should be consistent with the hope that we have then. 
So we look forward to what God has promised in the future, and we must be resolved to get ready for it. Eschatology, the study of end times, and ethics, how we are to live, they belong together. They go together. So let us set our minds on things that are above, putting to death the sins of our flesh and pursue holiness as he is holy. The third, third response is stop looking to the world and start seeing God. While seeing God is something that is the promised blessing of the future, it is something that God gives us a taste of now. For those who are in Christ, we can look around and we can see God everywhere. We see him in creation as we look at the majesty of a sunrise or the mystery of a cell. Every wonder of this world is meant to point us beyond itself to a creator who formed and fashioned every molecule of this world. We see God in the pages of scripture. While the impure in heart see nothing but a bit of history and dead religion, the pure in heart open these pages and see the glory of the living God. We see God in his body, in the church. While we are an ordinary and unimpressive group of people in the world's eyes, those who are in Christ recognize that in the church, the glory of God is put on display. He has brought forgiveness where there would have been bitterness. He has brought redemption out of brokenness, unity out of division. And as we come together as his people, he, he goes with us. He's walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. He gives us this promise in Matthew 28. He is with us even to the end of the age. One of the great blessings of being a part of God's kingdom is that the future blessing of seeing God is ours to glimpse and taste now. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Now, this is our response to look to him, to love him, to live for him. And by faith in him, he has fulfilled our requirement. We can be counted pure in heart because Jesus was pure. And the result of this is that one day we will see God. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I'm going to close with these words from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.